Did you know that 2018 is officially the year of no nonsense? <laughs> it is. I said so. So I created this revolution, I'm calling it, um, with the year of no nonsense. And you can check it out at yearofnononsense.com. But I created this pledge and we have this group and it's totally free, but it's just a group of people who are saying, you know what, 2017 and, and prior has been a little bit of nonsense and I'm ready to define my life on my terms and to get rid of the nonsense and my particular brand of nonsense in my life. And we all have our own special brands of nonsense. You know what I'm talking about. Whether it's we go stand in front of the pantry after dinner and continue to shove food in our face, or we put up with um, unnecessary drama and gossip at work or in our personal lives, or we just have those people on Facebook that we have yet to unfollow or unfriend. These are all certain types of nonsense, and there's many more. So hope you guys will think about joining us on this year of no-nonsense revolution to 2018 and beyond. I sound like Bud's Lightyear. But check it out, yearofnononsense.com. Today's guest is Amy Morin. She's the author of the book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Yikes, that's a big one, isn't it? 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. Just going to pause there for a minute. But you guys, I really enjoyed chatting with Amy. She's um, absolutely fascinating and has gone through quite a lot in her young life. And this book is just incredible. It's a great toolbox for parents and kind of a uh, checklist of things that we can really keep in mind as we wade through this minefield that is parenting. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Amy Morin. Hi, Amy. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good now that I heard that you live on a boat. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Before we started talking, Amy said that there might be some background noise because she lives on a boat, and I thought that was so fascinating. So we'll have to talk about that, but let's Let's back up and find out how you became Amy Morin, the psychotherapist and the author of these two amazing books that have really made a great impact in people's lives. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I was going to be a doctor. That was my original goal in life. Uh, so I thought, so my first day of college, we uh, were supposed to dissect cats and everybody else in the class was super excited about it. And I thought, you know, I'm just not that into it. <laughs> and so I called my sister that day and I said, ah, quick, I need a new major. This pre-med thing isn't going to work out. And she oh, said, funny. she said, what about social work? And I thought, huh, that'll work. So I didn't even really know what a social worker was, but I switched my major thinking I'll change it later on. You know, your first year, it doesn't really matter what you major in anyway. But, um, and then I fell in love with it. So I, uh, kept up with it and went to grad school and got my master's in social work too. And I thought my, my mission in life was going to be to teach other people how to be mentally strong. But that was where my interest in mental strength started. Was in social work. 
Yeah, yeah. I just I thought, you know, all right, if working on the body isn't my thing, maybe I'll help people from from the neck up. <laughs> we'll work on the <laughs> the mind instead. See, that was my thought too. I went through this phase where I thought I wanted to be a dentist and then I realized I had to like <laughs> work on a cadaver too and then I had to know like how the brain and all the body parts worked. And I, I was like, I exited stage left like you did. <laughs> right, right. The idea like, oh, of being a doctor do was good, but right. when I got right down to it, I thought, no, no, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had had that same foresight in law school, though, because I sat in my first day of civil procedure class and I thought, this is not for me, but I stuck it out for a while. It <laughs> took me like 15 years to get out of it. But so mental strength, like where did you first start to realize that this was a thing, that this was something like a quality and a characteristic and something that we could build on? Well, you know, as I started working as a therapist, I I would see people come into my office and so many of them had been through such incredible heartache in their life. And here they were saying, okay, I'm struggling, but I want to get better. They had hope and they were determined to do whatever they could to make their life better. And at some point it just occurred to me, just like we all have the ability to build physical strength, we all have the ability to build mental strength. And it's really about saying, okay, I want to do what I can to reach my greatest potential. And I just, I saw so many resilient people who, who were trying their best and they were determined to, to do whatever it took to make their lives the best that they could that I found it so inspiring. Yeah. So where did you have your first personal experience with mental strength? I know you went through a lot in a very short period of time in your 20s. Yeah, I was about 23, I get, and I had uh, been a therapist for a little while, again, thinking, okay, I'm going to help all these other people become mentally strong, but uh, that all sort of changed one day for me when my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm, and she was only 51, she didn't have any history of health problems, and she and I had been very close, and losing her, even though I was 23, I was technically an adult, it was really tough because I thought, you know, there's so many things that I still want my mom to be there for. And because she was healthy, I just, it wasn't anything I had ever envisioned. I had assumed I had another, you know, 40 years with her. And so it was one of those moments of, okay, now I have to figure out how do I be mentally strong? And that doesn't mean ignoring my feelings or just, you know, bucking up and saying, I'm going to toughen up and get through this. But it was about saying, how do I face the pain? How do I get through the grief? How do I allow myself to go through these really painful feelings so that I can heal? And it took a long time before I started to feel better. Um, but I, I was there, you know, I started to, to get some hope that, okay, we can create this new sense of, of normal in life about what life is like without my mom here on earth. And then on the three-year anniversary of when she passed away, my 26-year-old husband died suddenly from a heart attack. And mm. he didn't have any history of, of heart issues that we knew of. We think now he m must have been born with a heart defect that... Uh, had just gone undiagnosed and um, but I found myself now thinking okay I'm a 26 year old widow I don't have my mom now what do I do and and I didn't know I, I was lost I thought you know what do I still what are the the goals that my husband and I had together what do I still want to accomplish which ones do I want to give up and we had been foster parents and so I had to figure out do I still want to be a foster parent if I'm a single mom and it's it's tough to do as a single parent because there's so many appointments and so many things you have to do. And plus, I still had to work as a therapist. 
And so I took some time off and really sorted some things out and figured out, okay, what, what's next for me? And ultimately decided, yes, I will, I will go back into becoming a foster parent and stayed living in the house that we had and um, found some, you know, just really had to dig deep to get through the, the pain. And it was a, I guess to even say it was a tough time sounds like such a understatement because yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, I would think it an understatement. My goodness. <laughs> I, I, yeah. And yeah. And then and, and before you're 26, I mean, you, you know, I'm just, I'm just turned 38 and I'm trying to figure out who I am and I'm finally getting there. But at 26, I mean, you're still figuring that out big time. Exactly. And it was a strange place. You know, a lot of my friends were um, either still single and dating or they were just getting married and some of them were starting to have kids. And here I am a widow and thinking, well, where do I fit in now? And you know, so I did a lot of different things to f- figure out in my, you know, what do I want to do with my life and who do I want to become now? And after a few years, people would start asking me, well, what do you think about dating again? And it wasn't even on my radar. I thought, no, I'm not really interested in it. But a few years down the road, I was fortunate to find love again. And I got remarried. And we decided to, to get a fresh start somewhere else. We moved and uh, got a new job somewhere. And I thought, okay, this is it, you know, great life is is going well again and shortly after that my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer oh my and goodness. and it was just it felt like oh you know one good thing happens and now this and I just don't want to lose another loved one this isn't fair why do I have to keep losing people in my life and at some point during that pity party I, I was throwing for myself I was able to say okay well that's not helpful and we knew that my father-in-law had a matter of uh weeks, maybe months, but probably more like weeks left. And if I knew, okay, just, you know, drowning in self-pity wasn't going to do me any good. So I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things mentally strong people don't do. And it was sort of the things I had learned as a therapist and through my own journey. And I just never had put it all down in, in one place. It was just a list of the bad habits that if I allowed myself to indulge in them, I knew I'd stay stuck. And so I would read over this list uh, to help me during those dark days and the tough times. And at some point I thought, you know, well, I'll publish this online and we'll see if it could help somebody else if it's helpful to me. So I published the article, The 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And to my surprise, it went viral. It was read by 50 million people. Viral is an understatement to that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I can't even fathom what 50 million people even looks like. It's crazy to think about. Um, and that's when I, you know, occurred to me, you know, wow, people are, other people are interested in mental strength as well. And then fortunately, a literary agent called in the midst of all that and said, you should write a book. And I was glad I had the opportunity to write the book because from the article, people didn't know. They just thought, wow, you're a therapist and you mastered this list. Way to go. But that wasn't it. You know, it was, it wasn't that I mastered the list. It was the things that I struggled with and, and continue even after talking about it. And these are still things that I work on every day. And I was able to come out with the rest of the story in the book because nobody knew that it was, I wrote it during one of the most painful periods of my life. Right. You weren't just spouting advice. You were having to literally live, live through those things. Exactly. So what made you write a don't do list versus a to do list as in 13 things mentally strong people do? Like what made you kind of say, make a list of things not to do? Well, you know, during that period of my life, I could have come up with a list of, you know, 101 things I could do. Yeah. But I knew that it only takes one or two bad habits to 
to hold you back and keep you stuck. And so I knew that no matter what I was going through, no matter what was going on, if I didn't do those 13 things, then somehow I'd be okay. And as a therapist over the years, you know, I'd been trained to to build on people's strengths and to point out what they're already doing well and cheer them on and tell them, you know, keep doing those things that are helpful. But at some point I realized, you know, we're doing people a disservice. If I if I just tell you to do the great things and keep doing those, but I don't also point out some of your bad habits, yeah. then those <laughs> bad habits outweigh the good. And so just like if I went to see a see somebody about getting physically fit and they said, go to the gym, that's great. And I could keep working out. But if they didn't also tell me, hey, by the way, don't eat too much junk food. Well, going to the gym isn't going to be that much more effective. It, I could do so much more if they also said, you need to change your diet. Right. And so, so that working out actually became much more effective. And so uh, these are the mental habits that I just feel like no matter how many good habits we have, these are the ones that keep you stuck. It's kind of like that junk food that you have to give up. And if you give up these, then your good habits become much more effective. So what are, and we won't have to go through all 13 because people can read your book, but what, I mean, are there any that you feel are more important than others? Are there two or three that you feel like we should talk about? Um, well, you know, the first one, don't waste time feeling sorry for yourself. I think that one is super important. And if I had to pick a couple more, I would say um, don't expect immediate results. I think that's a yeah, tough one in today's world. One. Another one would be um, don't don't give away your power. Oh, that's a big one. That's yeah, a big one. So let's talk about the first one. Don't feel sorry for yourself. How how does someone who's feeling sorry for themselves? I mean, how did you not have a pity party with with all that you had been through? I know it's easy to say, okay, don't feel sorry for myself. But what are some what are some steps that someone can take to kind of break that cycle? Well, it's important to differentiate between being sad and pitying yourself. So while being sad is about saying this is terrible, uh, this is really hard, it's, it's going to be tough to get through, that can all be healthy. But when you start to exaggerate how bad things are or when you start to think that you're helpless and that nobody could ever possibly understand what you're going through, that's when it becomes self-pity. Mm -hmm. and, and when you are in that mode of pitying yourself, you don't do anything to make your life better. It becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where you think nothing will work. I can't do anything. Nobody understands. So you just sort of sit there and passively uh, complain or invite other people to attend your pity party. On Facebook. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or you, you know, you call all your friends just to complain and spout and vent. And uh, when they have ideas or offer suggestions, you get irritable and tell them why it won't work rather than consider it or listen. And, and so I think it's important, first of all, to just differentiate. Am I feeling sad? Is this good for me? Is it healing? Or am I starting to throw a pity party uh, and digging in my heels and then I'm just trying to stay stuck? And so if you're throwing a pity party, sometimes the best thing to do is say, what can I do to uh, pull myself out of this? So it might be I'm going to just get off the couch and go for a walk. I'm going to call a friend and talk about something completely different and allow myself to, to laugh or talk about something happy. Or maybe I'm going to go help somebody else when you, whether you volunteer for a few minutes or you just go over to, to visit somebody who maybe it's kind of lonely, just doing something kind for somebody else can go a long way to, to getting out of your own head and saying, what do I have to offer the world rather than I deserve more? Right. And it's all, everything you said was very action oriented. It's like, get out of your head and do something. 
Right. We wait. Sometimes we just think, well, when I feel better, I'll do that. But sometimes the best way to feel better is to change your behavior first. And then the the feelings change later, but you just have to take that leap of faith and say, I'm going to go do this. And then when you start doing it, then your feelings change. Yeah. So how did you get the idea to apply or to create 13 things that mentally strong parents don't do? I mean, obviously you're fostering kids, so you're like in the thick of it. (laughs) Well, you know, it really came out of readers from my first book. They, okay. I just kept getting the same question over and over again, which is, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? And I was getting emails and social media messages, and people just kept asking me that question so much. And so I went to my publisher and I said, what do you think? You know, do we need to create a, a parenting guide? And fortunately, they were on board. You know, I could have written a book for kids, but I wanted it to be a book that would teach parents how to become mental strength coaches because we know that kids, it's hard for kids to apply what they're learning and it's much, kids will see much better results if their parents are involved and the parents say, hey, this is a teachable moment. I'm right here in the thick of it. What can I do right now to help you? So, uh, so that's where that book came from was an idea of how do you raise kids who grow up to not do the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Yeah, I, I love this book. I, I think I look at it and I'm like, this, this book is me. I don't do all these things. And then, you know, something will happen. I'm like, oh, crap, that's number eight. I just did it. You know? <laughs> but and that's I think, what, I, yeah, that's what I hear from a lot of people who will yeah. say, no, I don't struggle with any of those. And then in the moment, they'll say, okay, maybe I do a little bit with that one. Or they'll catch themselves and say, yeah, I do that one sometimes. Yeah. Um, I forget which number it is, but the one that um, I know I don't do is making – my children, my child, the center of my universe. That has never been me. But as I read the, the chapter, I was like, Oh man, this is a lot of parents. And, and, and it often comes out of just tremendous love and longing and, and wanting a child, you know, you, you wanted this child for so long and then you get this child and they're the center of your world. And it's really interesting how that can lead to interesting behavior in your children. If they think they're the center of the universe. (laughs) <laughs> of all of all the chapters in the book, that is the one I've gotten the most pushback from. Really? From people who, who have, yes, which surprised me too, from parents who say, no, you're supposed to make your kids the center of the universe, aren't you? Oh. And yeah, and that I surprised that me. Because, <laughs> you know, I think obviously your kids should be a top priority and you should make sure that the, the way you're living your life is, is healthy and that you're a good role model for your kids. But that's different from making your entire world revolve around them. And I think we've lost a lot of sight of that. So many parents tend to think, you know, my my entire day is devoted to doing everything I can to make my kid happy right now. Or I need to make sure our entire family's activities revolve around sports and everything my kids are involved in. And it's selfish if I have a life outside of that. And frankly, that terrifies me that we're in this space where we're, yeah. we're just raising these kids who think that the world revolves around them because they're going to be in for a, a, a unpleasant surprise, <laughs> right, when they get to be in, in college and beyond to know that, wow, you know, the world doesn't revolve around me. Yeah. And I think I was actually raised as a little center of a mini universe. I mean, I don't know if I was the center of my parents' universe, but I was definitely raised as very center to the family. And while that was great as a kid, um, it does make for a hard 
transition into adulthood in the real world when you have to work hard and you experience disappointments and you're like, why is not everyone loving me? <laughs> right, right. Why, why does not everyone in the world love me? And I, I think it is a huge disservice. And obviously you want your kids to, to feel love and secure, but that's a different, that's a different thing. Right. And you also want them to be generous and kind and to know that other people have needs too and that they can think about other people and have empathy for others and that if they don't get what they want right now, that that's okay. Yeah. Another one that I really loved from the parent book, and I think this probably, you probably gotten some pushback from this one, if I could guess, if since you got the center of the universe pushback, but not shielding your child from pain. Yeah, actually, I just read an article about um, for the New York Post about this one. And uh, some parents were saying, you know, well, of course, I want to shield my kids from pain. I want them to have a wonderful, carefree childhood. And and I know that that's tempting to do. And I'm not saying we need to expose kids to all the realities of the universe just to toughen them up. But we also need to let them know that it's okay to, to be disappointed. It's okay to get rejected. And, and bad things do happen. And there are some bad people in the world but that you're strong enough to cope with that. So rather than teaching them, you can't handle it. You want to send the message that says, yeah, life is tough sometimes, but you're tougher and here's how you can get through it. And when you give kids the skills that they need, then they have opportunities to practice it during childhood so that when they grow up, they're able to go out there and, and face tough times and hardship without completely crumbling. Yeah. I just uh, took the kids to see the movie Wonder. Have you heard of that? Yes, um, I have. Art. Yeah, we saw it yesterday. I, it was so amazing. Such a great, such a great story, and and it makes me think of your book too. Because the parents, um, long story short, the movie's about a kid named Augie Pullman who has uh, Treacher Collins syndrome, which causes. Um, it's craniofacial structure. He just looks different. He's a different looking kid. And so his parents decide to enroll him in middle school, which if you can imagine going into middle school, just <laughs> as it is really sucks. <laughs> but with, you know, uh, when you look different, it's, it's even harder. And so the movie's kind of about the journey of this family. And, you know, these parents, Augie's parents, did not shield him from pain, right? I mean, he had to go through this in order to be a part of the world and his world and, and to move forward. And I thought that was such a great movie um, of just amazing parenting, um, just how to teach your kids resiliency under some really tough circumstances. But I thought it was really great for my kids to watch that movie and to, to see that, you know? Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the previews and heard about it too. And I think that that is a wonderful message to just for all of us to learn that, you know, it's tempting to shield kids because nobody wants to see their kids struggle. Nobody wants to see their kids in pain. But you can teach them so many life lessons that will carry them through the tough times because you can't always shield them from pain. At some point, something's going to happen and you can't, you can't prevent it from happening. So you need to make sure that they have the skills, they're prepared to deal with tough times. Yeah, and also I think pain is, is a hard word, right? I mean, you can translate it to maybe discomfort or uh, experiencing, yeah, like you said, tough times. Maybe not so much pain as like... <laughs> Right. You don't want to inflict, right, right. You don't want to inflict pain just for the sake of it or, um, you know, cause them to, to go through pain just to, just to say they endured it. But you want them to, to be okay with struggling, to know that they can turn their struggles into strength, but they need skills to do that. And we definitely need to teach them how. 
So where do you fall as a therapist and kind of a philosopher on the idea of resiliency and grit and kind of what you're born with? I mean, your book basically says you can learn these skills. Do you think some people are just more gritty and more resilient than others? I definitely think there's a, you know, genetic component biology can be in your favor. Uh, that makes it easier. It would just be like if we talk about mental strength, similar to the way we talk about physical strength. Well, we all have the capability of lifting weights and becoming a little bit physically stronger. But some people have complicating factors. If you have diabetes, for example, it's a little tougher. Or if you have some other physical ailment, it may be more difficult to to exercise. Mental strength is the same. Maybe you are struggling with depression or maybe you have a personality that causes you to be more of a pessimist and it's harder to think realistically. But that doesn't mean you can't still grow stronger. I think everybody has the capability to develop more mental muscle and we all have room for improvement. It's just a matter of putting in the time and the effort to do it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your experience as a foster parent. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was... Um, it, it, been a wonderful journey. I think it was one of the first things I did uh, during graduate school, actually. I had always wanted to be a foster parent. My parents had raised me to know that there are plenty of kids out there who, who weren't as fortunate. They didn't have parents to live with. And that was always uh, something that stuck with me. So at holidays, we would always make sure that we would donate to kids who uh, didn't have parents, that sort of a thing. And um, so it had been my goal is rather than have biological children, I said, you know, I really just want to make sure that I, I give out if I'm fortunate enough to have a home, I'm going to share it with kids who, who don't. And so I believe it was my first husband and I, I think I was about 21 when we became foster parents and, um, I didn't really know what to expect as a therapist. I had worked with plenty of foster kids in my therapy office, but wasn't sure what to expect, what it would be like to have them in my home. And, um, it was wonderful. We had kids between four and 17 over the years and, uh, some boys, some girls, it was teenagers that they usually had the most difficulty finding homes for. And the state knew I was a therapist. So they would often give me the, the tougher cases. We were therapeutic foster parents, which meant we took the kids that had more behavioral or emotional problems. Um, but for the most part, you know, if they had structure and guidance and love and support and you just really made it clear, here are the rules and we're going to keep you safe here. It wasn't uh, all of that difficult compared to, you know, some of them had files that were um, hundreds of pages thick about all of their behavior problems. And some of them had been kicked out of lots of places that they'd been. Um, but I found for the most part, they just needed a lot more structure and guidance and rules and consequences. What was some of the biggest challenges? I mean, was because I've thought about doing this. I've thought about being a foster parent, and um, I just I have a lot of fear around it. And that's one of the things mentally strong parents don't have. <laughs> I have read <laughs> allowing fear to dictate our choices. But um, you know, how did you? It just it seems to me like you would have to just be so confident. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I just, it, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, how did you get, like, what was, what was the most difficult part about being a foster parent, I guess? Like where, when you first get a child in your home, like, what do you do? What do you say? Like, how do you, 
allow someone to, or let someone know that they're safe. And I just feel like I would struggle so hard with that, with knowing the right things to do and say. It is tough at first. You I think, can't what even responsive- talk about it. I mean, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I can't even spit it out, let alone imagine it. You know, and so I would always just try to put myself in this child's shoes. I think, okay, here's a seven-year-old kid coming with a trash bag full of clothes to a complete stranger's house. And the adults are saying, I don't know if you'll ever be able to go home and live with your biological parents again. I don't know where you're going to live after this foster home. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what schools you're going to go to. And I just think how terrifying at the age of seven – I can't even imagine what that would be like to to be that old and have so many adults and so few answers um, and to go stay with these complete strangers. And so uh, I always just tried to make it crystal clear. Here's the rules in our home and this is what we expect. And this is what we'll give you. This is what we provide. This is what we have to offer. And um, a lot of these kids, you know, they had been through so much and they weren't sure at first, like, are you really going to hurt me? Are you an adult who's actually going to take care of me? And so it takes a while for them to build trust. And all the while, too, as a foster parent, there's so many questions. You just, you don't know. And they'll ask questions like, you know, am I going to be able to go back with my mom by Christmas? I don't know. And or will my parents be able to to come see me this weekend? I don't know. And But the good news is you have a team behind you. There's a guardian and there's usually a, a therapist, you know, as a I was the foster parent in this role. So the kids would usually have a separate therapist and we would have a, a team of people who were there to help with problems and questions and um, to get services in place. So um, you're not all on your own and there's usually somebody you can ask when you have questions or you encounter problems along the way. Um, so who who stayed? Well, you obviously can't say who, but who did you have for the longest? I guess what was your longest foster parent situation? Um, we had let's see, teenage girls. We had a couple of teenage girls that were there probably for the longest. I did a lot of when I was widowed and before I had gotten remarried. I did a lot of more short term placements. Mm-hmm. Um. And I eased into it with respite care. So sometimes it would just be weekend respite when another foster parent needed a break or had to go out of the state or something like that. And then um, when I got remarried and Steve and I decided to to do foster care, um, we had teenage girls, I would say, for the longest. And for some of them, there were really no answers. They had sort of come to the conclusion the state had that they might not get adopted. And... Uh, I had another girl that we knew she was going to be adopted, but it was going to be by out-of-state relatives. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of hoops to jump through. So she knew she was leaving. And I guess she was probably our longest kid. She knew she was leaving, but it was a matter of waiting and waiting and waiting. And it kept getting delayed because of issues with her uh, relatives and figuring out how long until they could get, get licensed in the state where they lived. And our state had to work with their state and lots of things. So it just kept getting delayed and delayed. And so she was probably our longest foster kid. Cool. So let's go back to the book for a little bit. What are some, what are two of the things on the list of the 13 things that mentally strong parents don't do? What are two things that you think are the most important or that you have really had to work on as a foster parent? I would say uh, that they don't feel responsible for their child's emotions would be one. Um, Yeah, as a foster parent, that one is tough, too, because you think, oh, these kids have been through so much and I don't want them to have to 
to have to deal with any more difficulties. So you just want to cheer them up. You want to make them happy because you think, you know, you shouldn't be sad. Yeah, go ahead and eat that second piece of cake. You've been through so much in life. You deserve right. that. And and so it was really about letting them know, okay, it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be angry. And it's not up to me to regulate your emotions. It's up to me to teach you how to do that. Um, so that was one. And another one would be about not preventing kids from making mistakes. Because sometimes, again, with foster kids, you think, gosh, it's not your fault you don't know this, so I just want to go in there and do it for you. Or I don't want you to, to be embarrassed in front of the other kids, or I don't want you to have to fail at anything. I just want to spare you from all of that. So if I just correct your homework for you right now, or if I say, you know, don't even worry that you didn't do your chores because you shouldn't have to worry about that, or you've been through so much, and I make excuses for them, but I wasn't doing them any good in the long term. So it was really about keeping my eyes on the long term. What skills can I teach you while you're with me so that you can have those skills and hopefully carry them forward so that over the course of your life, no matter what happens and where you end up, you'll have learned something while you're in our house. So as far as the emotions thing, I want to go back to that. <laughs> How hard is it to teach your child to regulate their emotions when you're like an out of control emotional mess? <laughs> <laughs> then it becomes difficult because kids right. certainly learn by watching us. You know, what does mom do when she's upset or what does dad do when he's frustrated? And then they pick up on that and they think, oh, it's those things are OK. I should do that, too. And and as parents, you know, if you want your child to calm down, it's so much easier to just calm them down yourself rather than teach them how to calm down or to, if there's something upsetting in the environment, you just say, well, I'll just remove that. Or I'll shut that off or I'll get rid of that. And then you won't scream, but we don't need to keep modifying their environment. That's what you do when you have babies and you have toddlers is, you know, you can do those things for them, but as they grow up, they need to learn how to do those things for themselves. So, instead of calming kids down when they're bored or cheering them up when they're sad or entertaining them, then it becomes about teaching them, how can you how can you learn how to do those things for yourself? And it could be as simple as saying, if you have a child who, who has a bad temper and gets in trouble when he's mad, maybe you create a calm down kit. Could be a box just filled with items that uh, help him to, to calm down. Maybe a coloring book and some crayons, some lotion that smells good, or a, a journal to write in. And you put it in a shoebox in the corner. And then rather than telling your child to go through 25 different things to calm himself down or taking him outside, you just can say, why don't you go get your calm down kit? And with, the, <laughs> with the goal of eventually that your child would go, go do that himself when he's upset so that he can figure out, okay, these are the coping skills that work for me and this is how I do it. And then that way he takes responsibility for his emotions rather than you doing it for him. I think adults need calm down kits too. I think you're onto something, Amy. You well, you know, market that. <laughs> funny you say that because when I I've gotten that from so many readers of the book who said I created my own calm down kit, and that was something I've noticed too. Is a lot of the exercises in the book. I have exercises for parents, but there's also exercises for kids. But I'm finding a lot of parents are taking the exercises for kids and doing it for themselves because they're saying, I was never taught these really simple skills either. So now I'm applying them to my own life. And I think that's wonderful that parents are doing that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all products of many generations of great parents, bad parents, excellent parenting tactics and skills and some really bad ones. Like, what have you seen as far as the hand-me-down type um, culture as far as what your parents do and their parents did and, and how does how can your book and the tips and that kind of apply to breaking cycles and 
habits that have been carried down from a long way back. <laughs> well, you know, we all learn these sort of core beliefs about the world and ourselves and other people when we're little. And then it's really hard to unlearn what you've already learned. And so if you grew up in a family that thought other people are bad, you can't trust anybody these days, and uh, other people will just step on you to, to get ahead in their own lives, well, that carries with you. So maybe when you're 30 and you're trying to apply for a promotion, you think everybody's out to get you or you mm -hmm. struggle in your romantic relationships because somewhere along the way, your parents planted that seed that you can't trust anybody. So I think it's really important to just think about, well, what, what did I learn as a kid? What are the beliefs that I hold on to? And how do I get rid of some of those that aren't serving me well as an adult? And because I think a lot of those beliefs get passed down from one generation to the next to the next. And we're just usually not aware of that, that sort of family culture that we adopted ourselves. And then we just don't recognize necessarily how those beliefs affect us in our everyday life, unless you become aware of them and you really spend time thinking about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you grow up with your family and you go to school in the same town and then you raise your kids around your parents and you really don't see it but you can tell when you move away for a little bit and go home yes <laughs> you can really see it I mean I notice a lot of differences when I go home I'm like wow I remember living here but it's boy it's awfully different <laughs> yes that's funny isn't it I grew up in a small town in rural Maine and same sort of a thing you know it was everybody who lived there had lived there for generations for the most part and then you go away and you come back and you think oh all right things are a little different than I than the way that I remember them in my mind or I didn't necessarily realize that this was ingrained in me until I had a break from it for a while yeah and you begin to create your own core beliefs and and things based off of your own experiences which I think is is really important but if you start to recognize these core values or core beliefs that maybe you didn't know, like, how, well, what are some, I guess, tools and, and things that people can do to maybe dig deep and see what some of their core beliefs might be that they might be unaware of? I think it's important to look at, okay, what, what are my goals in life and what keeps me from getting there and then do you blame yourself do you blame other people do you sort of just think it's the luck of the draw in the universe of who gets things and who doesn't and when you start to look at that sort of what do you think holds you back in life then you can start to answer some of those questions so in my therapy office I work with some people who will say well I'm just not good at leading people so therefore I can never have anything other than an entry-level job or somebody else who said I'm a terrible public speaker so I'm, I'm just never going to get very far in life or I've worked with other people who thought somehow earning a lot of money was bad so if I, I just can't possibly earn more money because money is the root of evil and just recognizing all right well is that true what are the advantages of holding on to that belief what's some contrary evidence when you look for exceptions to the rule who what are what how do I know maybe I am a good public speaker um, and then finally give yourself the advice that you might give to a friend if I had a friend who came to me and said I can't apply for a promotion because I'm I'm bad at public speaking what would you say to your friend maybe you'd give them some kinder advice well if we could just give ourselves that same kind advice and use some right. self-compassion we can make a lot more change we tend to be so much more critical and harsh with ourselves Right. So how much, as a therapist, your expert opinion, how much are we allowed to blame our parents? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I there's a... I think about it now that I am a parent and, you know, something will happen and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a therapy moment someday for them. You know what I mean? I'm like, right. oh my gosh, what am I doing? And, you know, like, how much 
how much are we really messing up our kids? <laughs> well, there's a study that came out actually assessing just that. And they said, you know, no matter how, how much it is, say, your parents' fault that you turned out the way you did, <laughs> it doesn't um, – what matters most is how much you blame your parents. The people who blame their parents the most tend to have the worst lives. And so I think it's really important to figure out, okay, even though I learned these things as a kid or my parents did this or they did that and maybe they didn't always do things the way that they could have, holding on to that when you're 30 will hold you back. And so that's yeah. one of those core beliefs, thinking my parents messed me up for life will actually mess you up for life. But just saying, oh, I didn't have the best childhood, but that's okay you can still go on and reach your greatest potential. So I think the answer is no matter what sort of childhood you had, you can use it as an explanation for maybe how some things ended up, but don't use it as an excuse. Yeah. One of my favorite things I've heard in regard to parents and, and blame um, was on that documentary with Tony Robbins. I'm not your guru. When he said something about how, if you're going to blame, he was talking to this young woman and he said, if you're going to blame your dad for everything he didn't do, you better blame him for what he did do that was good, that made you good. And I think that's such great advice because you can look at your relationship with your parents and say, oh my gosh, look at the mess for X, Y, and Z. But then there's so many great qualities that these people passed down and taught you and instilled. And so I love that whole thing about blaming effectively. <laughs> that if you right. blame, when you start to blame effectively, it's actually going to switch your whole view of things because then it's no longer blame and it's more gratitude and we've all got to find some gratitude in order to get through life <laughs> absolutely and you know and even if you didn't have the best childhood good things can come out of that I mean they've done tons of studies on that too that kids who grew up in tough circumstances sometimes can end up being stronger in life because they've they've endured it they figured it out they gained skills they wouldn't have if they had the really easy childhood so where do you walk the line as far as you know raising kids to be a little bit, you know, not give them everything, to not make everything so easy. I mean, your book has obviously a ton of information about this, but what are some things that you see in your practice that, parent, like right off the bat, that parents could do to make their children a little bit more gritty, more resilient, that you just see something happen and you're like, oh, no, not that, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> I, I just Like Christmas time is coming up, holidays are coming up gifts, food, like what in a holiday atmosphere um, do you see that you, you think, oh gosh, if they didn't do that, that would be better for their children? Well, you know, there's, and I think, you know, like on let your kids eat candy on Halloween and let them have presents and those things don't hurt them. But there is a lot of research on overindulgence and how yeah. that hurts kids. And the studies are incredible on how many parents go into debt over the holidays just because they don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to feel like, oh, I wish I would have bought my kids more or I don't want to look bad on social media because all the other kids are getting tons of gifts, so I'm going to go overboard. And that's not good for kids and it's not good for you either. But in the long term, overindulged kids tend to turn into really unhappy adults. And so I think it's important to scale back and say, you know what, and that goes back to your values too, knowing, you know, what what do you really value in life and how do you want your kids to view material possessions and what do you want them to think about the holidays and what are the holidays about and how can I send these messages to my kids so that they aren't just thinking I always need more because studies will show that kids who get too much now grow up never feeling satisfied. They always think I need more, more, more. But yeah. I think as parents think sometimes the more I give to my kids now, the more satisfied they'll be. But it's really the opposite. Yeah. 
Well, Amy, I've had a great time and thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I just stumble over this parenting thing. Like I can talk to people about like, (laughs) but when I get on the parent interviews, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Cause it's hard, man. You're just like trying to figure out how to not mess up your kids and how to get through your own issues. It's just, it's really good stuff. And so I appreciate your work and everything that you're doing, but I have one more question for you. Um, this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it was born out of the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do in those 24 hours, um, on a daily basis that makes us healthy, happier, and more successful and to live our best lives. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that you have found has made your life better? Um, I would say practicing gratitude. I mm-hmm. think that's one of the easiest, fastest ways. And it's something you can do every day, no matter whether I'm on the road or if I'm at home. But it just takes a few minutes to just recognize, what do I have? What do I have to be grateful for in life? And I try to make it a, a habit to identify at least three things I'm grateful for every day. That's awesome. Well, I'm grateful for you and your book and for a list of things that will keep me in line. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I will post a link up to your website and your social media and your book so everyone can check it out. So thank you, Amy. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.